This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, my co-host. Jesse, you there? Hey, what's happening, man? How you doing? Jesse B-Roll Burnham. I'm doing well, buddy. How are you? Oh, good, man. Um, finally just got my setup back in order. So you have internet so, now? I got internet. My, uh, pod, my mic arm broke. During the move, so I currently have duct tape on it. <laughs> nice. But I'm here and I'm uh, recording, so I guess life is good. Good, man. Yeah, um, glad to hear you're all moved in now. Those mic arms, I don't know about yours, but mine's pretty cheap. I think it's a piece of junk. We should probably get new ones. What do you think? Yeah, they're all made in China. What are you going to do? <laughs> So, anyways, I got another guy from Pennsylvania, um, Rich Yagi is the gentleman. Uh, he's friends with, like, Teddy. We we interviewed Teddy uh, earlier on, uh, I believe it was number seven. Yeah, so, yeah. Curious to see what he has to say. Um, you know, kind of like you always talked about when we kind of had this idea was you want to hear from everybody in the different states and and just see how their habitat differs from from ours, right? Yeah, no, for sure. It's um, We hear the same old stuff here in Michigan, so it's uh, interesting to get see what works in other states, and maybe we can kind of pick up some tips and um, start utilizing some of this information here in Michigan. So. Heck, yeah. All right, well, I'm going to get him on. I got one more quick thing we have. Excuse me, the decals have been finished by nice. our boy David over there. 
Um, oh, good old Speedy Dave, man. He used to hook me up all the time back in the day when I had my business. Yeah, yeah, they look they look good, and I'm but giving... Dave at Allegra yep. in Milford. You got Give it. Give a little shout out. There you go, Dave. He makes some sweet decals, and I'm giving one away right now to Jordan Prevo, I believe is how you say his last name. He left us a very nice review on the iTunes podcast app, the Apple app. So, like I said, uh, we'll be giving away random prizes to people that leave us good reviews. So thanks for that, Jordan. We appreciate it. And uh, Jess, if you're ready, let's uh, let's get Rich on the line. Yeah, I'm gonna go leave a review real quick so I can get my decal. <laughs> you have to leave two, bro. All right. But yeah, let's get him on the line. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back. We are here with my co-host Jesse, and our guest this evening is Rick Yagi from Pennsylvania. How you doing, Rick? Good. How are you guys? Not too good, bad. man. Good. So you are from PA. Where are you at in Pennsylvania? I'm from a town called Cogan Station, which is in Lycoming County. Um, geographically, it's north central Pennsylvania, so it's uh, pretty much the, pretty much directly in the middle of the state, towards the north. I'm probably about an hour and 15 minutes away from the New York border. Okay, and is that, like, mostly wooded up there, or what's your um, what's your area like up there? Well, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good mix, actually. I mean, there's um, quite, a, quite a few farms in the area. There's some really big tracts of... Uh, public lands, big woods, uh, numbering in the thousands of acres. Um, where I live, specifically, it, it's a pretty good mix of agriculture with uh, mixed woodlots and stuff. Uh, some of the smaller properties are probably around the, the 10 acre range, but some of the neighboring properties total in you know, a couple hundred acres, so it's a pretty good mix, but for the most part, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, pretty wilderness around here. Okay, um, now, why don't you go ahead, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about you, you know, what you, maybe what you do for a living, how you got started outside, you know, we like to kind of paint a picture of the guests and, uh, I think people like hearing, you know, your background, so. Of course. Well, uh, you know, the name's Richard Yagi. That's Y-A-G-G-I-E. Sounds Chinese, kind of like Mr. Miyagi. (laughs) But uh, um, I've been told it's German. Um, I'm no one special, really. Um, Just a regular guy. Loves the outdoors. I like to hunt and fish. I am a supervisor of respiratory therapy at UPMC Susquehanna, which is a hospital here locally. And I've been married to my wife for about eight or nine years. Um, she's really been my rock in all this. Um, 
you know, without her, none of the stuff that I do would be possible. I mean, she's super supportive of everything that I do, and uh, can't say enough about her. Is she listening right now? What's that? No. (laughs) (laughs) She's probably putting the kid to bed right now. Oh, I'm just using you. No, that's nice. Oh, yeah, well, (laughs) I see what you're saying now. So, in November 26, 2015, uh, became one of the greatest things ever, which is a dad to a little boy who's two and a half years old right now. He's not so little anymore. Wow. And, uh, yeah, life is great, man. I mean, I, I like to camp, hunt, fish, a big-time bow hunter. Um, you know, I get to go to work to a job that I like to do where I help people for a living, you know, sometimes save a few lives, and then I get to come home and hunt and get to work on my habitat, so. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. No. No. Can't argue with that. So now, where where do you hunt in Pennsylvania from PA, and, I mean, what, what, uh, how big is your property hunting? Do you own it or do you lease it? Is it a friend's? So I have 65 acres here at my house. We purchased it four years ago. Very nice. Before that, yeah, uh, for this area, we're we're seven and a half miles from town. I mean, it's almost almost unheard of to get a size of, you know, a, a piece of land this size this close to town, so. I mean, it literally takes us 15 minutes to get to work from here. So, I mean, you couldn't ask for much more than that. Um, Before that, we had a a 10-and-a-half-acre property a little bit further east of here. It was a bit more of a commute in the town. It was still pretty good hunting, but obviously being a smaller piece, you know, I couldn't hunt it as much as I would like to, so I moved around quite a bit. I used to hunt three different counties here locally. My home county, Wycombe, Clinton County, and then Tioga County. And I would just kind of, based off of weather patterns, temperatures, wind directions and stuff, and pretty much what I was seeing in the field, I would just kind of move around to the three different counties and just stayed mobile. And it was a pretty good system. You know, I killed a number of good bucks uh, in all three counties. But, uh, you know, the plan, bigger plan was to always just have a bigger piece of, of land of my own so we could start a family and and I wouldn't have to leave home so much. So That's a good point. I should have uh, pitched that to my wife. Well, it makes sense. I mean... Yeah, you get young kids, and then you can... And you're hunting in the backyard, like, all the time now, Do you, would you say? Or are you still popping around a little bit, depending on the wind or weather? Pretty much. I mean, I have permission to hunt a few properties locally here within a five-minute drive okay. of my house. But the bulk of my hunting's done here at home now. A little bit of public land, and that's usually during the rifle seasons, 
where I like to get out and move around a little bit more, you know, but uh, the majority of it's done right here. So now, what kind of terrain does your property consist of? Is it fields, ag, woods, hilly, any water on there? Kind of paint a picture of an aerial view, I guess you could say. Okay. So my property is uh, almost 99% wooded. Um, it uh, It's obviously 65 acres. Um, the properties around me are 10, 12, 18, 40, and 100 acres. And that's, well, that's not like too bad. What's around me there? Um, it's uh, it's pretty hilly. It's a thousand foot elevation at the highest peak, and it's it's about a 250 foot elevation change from my house to to the top of the hill. So it's it's a pretty significant change. There's three main hollows that run along. Uh, let me just say about 85% of the property, or 75% probably, is south-facing slope. So you say yeah. hollows. Do you – is that referred to hollers? Jesse, I was going to ask like, him the same thing. How do you – is it holler? Hollow, hollow? It, it, maybe it's a Pennsylvania term. It's like a gorge that runs up the side of the hill, like a drainage area. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And around here, we just – we call them hollows. I think okay, so, yeah, southern Ohio, where we hunt, they call them hollers. Okay. Which one's correct? Yeah, so there's, so there's three hollows on the property, two two main ones, and then and I actually use one of the hollows for my access to the top of the property. And uh, then it's the top of the hill, pretty, pretty flat on top, and then I have a little bit of north... Uh, north-facing slope also, but not very much. I'd say about 25% of the property is, uh, you know, like a flat ridge and north-facing slope. Okay. So we have a small creek that runs through the bottom of the property. The uh, hollows, the two main hollows actually have water in them also uh, most of the year. And I do have water holes uh, established in both hollows over there, so it, it kind of there's more than one water source on the property. Okay, very nice. Mainly, it's mature timber here, so it was that was definitely a selling point here. It's, you know, at, at first we were thinking maybe we could harvest some of the logs here to help pay for the place, but we since decided against that. So okay. let me ask you a question about that. Why uh, why didn't you go through with that? Or um, I mean, that's definitely a good good thing to think about when you buy a new piece of property, right? Yeah. Well, I'm not saying we're never going to have it done. Ah, okay. But for right now, I'm doing a lot of TSI work on the property. Uh, we're moving a lot of the low value species and stuff. And there are a couple areas on the property that has excellent timber on it. I mean, we have a lot of oaks here on the property, white oaks, red oaks, chestnut oaks, black oaks. And 
But then there's some other areas that, you know, if you just gave it another 10 or 15 years, you'd have something really special here. So we're we're just going to hold off on the timbering and just okay. kind of maybe save that for a nest egg in the future. Okay. Very nice. Yeah, good point. So before we kind of jump into habitat, um, you know, I know a lot of our listeners are in your situation and Jared and mine as far as looking and buying property. Sure. Um, I mean, can you kind of just tell us a little, do you have any tips on buying your property? Like how long did you look before you bought it? How many properties did you walk? Some of the key factors you look for? You know, kind of what's what's the going rate for the acres out there per acre? All right. So I've been looking at land since 2008. I graduated college in 2008, and, you know, I started making some money. And you guys probably aren't very familiar with uh, some of the things that's going on here in Pennsylvania in the last 10 years, but we've had this natural gas boom. And it started right around 2008, something called hydraulic fracturing, which, uh, you know, basically we had all these gas and oil companies come in here. They leased up the land. I mean, some of the, some of the leases were as high as $2,500 to $5,000 an acre. If these people, these gas companies were paying what? people. To lease their pro- oh yeah, I mean there was uh, Pennsylvania, especially uh, my part of PA was very busy here for for about four years. I mean there was all these all these oil and gas workers coming up from down south, um, and property values like really skyrocketed around that time. Um, you know to, to buy a property with acreage during that time uh, and to be able to obtain the oil and gas. No one was selling property with the oil and gas rights, and they just wanted a ridiculous amount of money for these properties. So, you know, I kind of was looking at land ever since I graduated college. I met my wife um, around 2010. Uh, We bought our first house a year later, which is a a 10-and-a-half-acre property, up in this uh, valley called Pine Creek Valley. Uh, it's a popular tourist area here in our area. Uh, it's got good hunting up there. Uh, did pretty well on that property, but it was like I never stopped looking at other properties. Even though I wasn't currently in the market, I was just kind of educating myself to what properties were going for like when I'd see a place listed that had like 20 acres I checked I was looking at it sure. you know seeing they wanted for it you know looking at like you know the, the satellite imagery and stuff and the topographic lines and stuff it's just kind of like building an idea in my mind what these properties were selling for so that when something came available <laughs> that was like we gotta buy this one you know, you're educated on the market, and you can act quickly. So, well, well, we all we all like to dream. I mean, it's kind of like uh, when you're in, when you're into hunting and property, and I think every guy or gal is always looking at property, even though they can't afford it. But we're always looking and trying to educate ourselves. That's a good point. 
I've never, I never in a million years thought that I would have owned and you know, a house with 65 acres of land. I mean, really, the most I ever hoped for was 20 or 30 max. So, I mean, this this property here has really has been a dream come true for us. But uh, yeah, so you know, just kind of studying the land values and stuff. Um, 2014. We uh, had heard through some friends of ours at the hospital that uh, one of the doctors was selling their property, and it was a gorgeous property, kind of on the opposite side of the county where we live right now. So we went and looked at it, and there again, the guy had a gas lease in place on the property, did not want to part with any of the gas rights, and... He wanted an astronomical amount of money for that property, and it was a gorgeous property, 50 acres, uh, had a nice trout stream that ran through the property, mostly south-facing slope. It had some ridges. It was a hollow and stuff, um, probably a 10-acre or at least an 8-acre field in the bottom, you know, that would have been tillable and stuff, so it was uh, pretty much a perfect scenario from a hunting and outdoorsman standpoint, and we just couldn't get the guy to budge on the price at all, so we had to walk away from it. But we had actually saw this place maybe a month beforehand. Uh, we were sitting at home one day, and my wife found it. <clears throat> she said, uh, Rick, look at this house. It's for sale. It's got 65 acres. And uh, it had quite a hefty price tag on it. We were looking at it and stuff. And, you know, I kind of just said to her, I said, yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> you know, someone, someone's going to buy it. You know, wish we had that kind of money and stuff. And, you know, meanwhile, we were, we were preoccupied with this other place. When that one fell through, we walked away from it. We were, you know, we were kind of bummed out and stuff. The place that we have now had gone off the market and my wife got all upset. She came to me the one day, she's like, Rick, that house is gone. The one was 65 acres. And I'm like, well, someone probably bought it. I mean, <laughs> that close to town, you know, yeah. places like that, they don't come up for sale very often. You know, someone probably bought it for the hunting, you know, we kind of just was like, whatever, you know, maybe a week or two later, she was obsessed over this house. Got a phone call from her saying, Rich, that house that we thought sold with the 65 acres, it's back on the market. And she's like, you're not going to believe what they have it listed for. They had dramatically reduced the price by like $150,000. What? Yeah, it was crazy. And so that, that short of a time period? Yes. There was some financial things going on there. Yeah, yep. Most of I really don't want to get into, but uh, they, had to, they had to move the house quickly. Okay. So I looked at it, and I was like, whoa, you know, we, we can afford that. So, um, you know, we got a hold of my wife's sister is actually a realtor, and, you know, she had some friends. She called one of her friends up who let me in the house over here, and uh, we we moved pretty quick on it. 
we we got our got our offer in. Um, they wanted to try to keep the gas, oil and gas. That was part of them reducing the house down. They were thinking, well, we'll hold on to some of the oil and gas rates. But when we put our offer in, we just said, we want all the oil and gas. We're going to give you what you want for it. And they accepted it. So, And it was just kind of weird how things fell in place because the house that we were living in with the ten and a half acres had been on the market for two years before we bought it. So we were kind of worried about having to pay two mortgages. You know, what if we can't sell our house in time, you know, so we can close on this one. And uh, we listed our house and our last place sold in 10 days. And we were able to close on both houses on the same day. So it was like super smooth transition. It was almost like it was meant to be for us. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, I just just went through the same... um same process. I didn't buy land, but I, I bought a house and did the same process. So I know it can be a pain in the butt. But I got a quick question about these oil rights. So it seems like if a lot of these homeowners or landowners are keeping their oil rights, like I know my family, we have our oil and gas rights up north on our property in Michigan. seems like you would be able to get the actual physical land cheaper if you let them keep the oil rights, is that true or no? Not really. No? No. They don't. The uh, You would think that, but it's that's not really the case. I mean, it's, people know that these oil and gas uh, rights are, are worth holding on to nowadays, and it's it's just that it's unfortunate, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's jacked up the price of land around here, and people are holding on to their rights now when they sell their properties. I mean, God forbid we ever have to sell our place, uh, I can guarantee I'll be holding on to at least 50% of my rights here. You know, so if, no. someone's, try- if someone's trying to be fair about it, they'll at least offer you 50% of, of the oil and gas rights on the property, but... It's like, you know, you're really, you know, to buy a property and spend full price on it and not get any of the oil and gas, people do it, but it's not very a very wise investment. Yeah, yeah. So now, I mean, what's like the average per acre price for, you know, bare, bare land, you know, say 10, 20 acres? I mean, what's the average per acre price with no house or buildings on it? Roughly, average price is about twenty five hundred an acre. Okay, yeah, that's that's pretty reasonable. But depending on the locality, um, there are several school districts here in the area which are considered highly desirable. Montoursville, um, Loyal Sock, Muncie area being a, a few of them, you could end up paying a lot more. I mean, I know people that's paid ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars an acre for for their properties to build on. So it's it, it just all depends what school district you're looking at. Okay. You know, and how close 
the industry and the jobs are and stuff because you know, if you go a little bit further north uh, from here to a, a county called Potter County, Potter County's got excellent hunting up there. I mean, it's you guys should see some of the bucks that come out of Potter County up there. It's, it's vast wilderness. There's lots of farms. There's almost no jobs up there, though. So property is extremely cheap up in Potter County. And a lot of guys end up pitching in, buying camps and stuff up there in, in uh, areas like that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I just uh, I just Googled Potter County Bucks. You got some nice ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Potter County, uh, they have a big buck contest every year, and it's, some of the bucks they bring in there are just amazing. I mean, they, they uh, and there's a lot of them. So it's yeah, wow. Of, I'm kind of blown away by the the deer I'm seeing on here. Um, you guys have when I first graduated uh, college, I was actually looking at a job in Potter County because I'm, I was thinking land then. You know, I'm like, well, land's cheaper there. I could get a job at this community hospital. That's out there. It's called Kane Community Hospital, and uh, yeah, I was looking at it, but I thought, no, nah, I I can't be that far away from everything. Yeah, I grew up. I mean, this is my hometown here. Oh, is it really? Nice. Yeah, I mean, I grew up um, not far from here. Yeah, I was a Williamsport native most of my life. You know, all my friends and family's here, so it's just natural that I just should settle down here in this area. It was one of the best decisions I ever made. Well, especially buying a nice chunk of property close to town, I mean, with all the rights on it, that sounds pretty nice. Um, now, what would you say, if you had a tip or two for anyone out there wanting to buy their first piece of property, what would you suggest as uh, one or two pieces of advice? Well, I would say first and foremost, start educating yourself on the market. And, you know, even when you're, you know you're not ready to buy the house yet, start looking. So that way, you know, I've told several of my friends this, that way when something comes up that you know is a good deal, you're ready, you know, you can, you can jump on it. I mean, you know, now, kind of goes hand in hand, you know, you got to start saving money, too, and get yourself into a situation financially where you're able to do that. And that's kind of like where I give my wife credit because, you know, I was uh, not always responsible <laughs> with my money and stuff before I met her, and she's just always been like this, you know, you know, she likes to save her money, and she's always just conscientious on, you know, what she spends her money on and stuff. And a little bit of that's rubbed off on me over the years. And, you know, we were able to – I've picked up some of her good habits, I guess. Good. But Yeah, you definitely need a – you definitely need yeah. a down payment. You can't – yeah, I mean, it doesn't really do any good to look if you're not at least working towards, you know, the fiscal – responsibility to actually make the purchase if, if something does come up. 
So, and then, you know, from a hunting standpoint, you just got to, you got to know what you want. <clears throat> you know, you have to, uh, you know, you know, decide, you know, how, how much acreage you want. Um, see, for me, you know, just from being from this area, you know, I kind of knew which areas were were good hunting around here. You know, you hear the stories, oh, this guy, he, you know, Jimmy shot this buck, you know, over in Kogan Station or, you know, or, you know, Tommy got this big one out in the Muncie Valley and stuff. You kind of have a general idea of the areas you're getting yourself into. And you got to have realistic expectations for those areas, too. So, I mean, for me personally, when I started getting serious about looking for a hunting property, <clears throat> we had our price range. And uh, outside of that, basically, I was looking for properties where I could get the most acreage with the kind of like the the general stipulations that I wanted. First and foremost, I wanted a lot of south-facing slope. And the reason for that is basically the kind of cover that you find on south-facing slopes. South slopes always have the best cover. If you were to go um, walk from the south-facing slope of any hillside over to the north side, assuming that the north side and the south slide doesn't really have any differences in, like, the last timbered dates, you would notice that south sides are always much brushier than the north side. The trees look different. The undergrowth is different. Deer like to bed on south side of the hills. Now, why is that? So, and basically, your best cover and, your mo and the most foods on the south-facing slopes. I mean, it's where all the browse is. Um, you know, the crowns of the trees are going to be much fuller, so you're going to have better acorn productions on the south side. Um, you know, during the during the rut, the cold months, you know, they'll be laying on the south side to, to get that morning sun there first thing in the morning, you know, especially yeah. when temperatures dip down into the 20s or or, or further, they rely on that that sun poking up over the hills first thing in the morning to get them warmed up, get them a little bit active and stuff. So, and then you know, so South Slope was was very important to me. Another thing I was looking at was like topography. You can have all the South Facing Slope that you want. You know, but if you don't have the topographical changes where you can hide deer, you can hide your access routes into your tree stands and stuff, if it doesn't set up well, then you're not going to be very successful on it. So this place here, when I was looking at it on the topographic uh, maps, really stuck out to me because of the, the topographic changes. I mean, these, you know, the 250-foot change in elevation from top to bottom, the hollows that ran up through the center, um, just little cuts in the ridges and stuff like that. It's, I knew this property was a place that was going to 
hide a lot of deer, and it was going to give me the ability to get in to hunt those deer undetected through those hollows. So Okay. So you kind of had, it sounds like you kind of had an idea on how access is important and how topography can play into that and help you. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, I mean, access, the, the way it sets up, if it, you know, if the way it sets up is, is everything as far as getting the deer to live there. But, you know, the topography and your access is the other, is the other side of that where if you don't have good access into the property, then it's not going to be a good hunting property for you. You might get lucky. You might still kill some nice bucks off of that, but to routinely go in day after day and be able to see deer and have deer come past your tree stands, you've got to have solid bulletproof access into those tree stands or you're wasting your money on a hunting property. I would so, have to agree. This property here has all of that, and so did the other one we were looking at. They just wanted too much money for it. Okay, so at least you kind of were privy to some of these things before you bought your first piece of property. You know, a lot of people might not be thinking about that type of stuff. Um, well, I got a little lucky, too. I mean, okay. I, I didn't really get a whole lot of time to come over here and scout this place. I mean, you know, what immediately drew me to the property was the topography, uh, when you looked at the aerial photo satellite image on the map, it looked like there was a farm right next door. I mean, there were fields on the satellite image and stuff, and, you know, that kind of initially that made my eyes glow up because I'm like, oh, my God, look, look at those fields. They, you know, they probably plant corn and soybeans in those fields and stuff. And, you know, I was thinking, well, every deer in that whole area is going to be betting on my property and stuff. Well, it turns out it was a, it was a CRP field, and actually it, it, it really wasn't a CRP field. It, the guy has it enrolled in some kind of native grass program. This could be just as good as corn or soybeans. Yes, yeah, yeah, CRP is good around here. He, he mows it twice a year, though. Oh. So it's like those fields don't do anything for me except... Um, guarantee that the deer won't be bedding in those fields or use <laughs> for anything other than move from point A to point B. Oh, so in a way, it still does kind of help me, but it wasn't quite the draw that I thought it would be. And uh, like I said, we kind of got lucky here because, you know, once we actually bought the property and I was able to scout it over a year or so, I identified over three dozen fruit trees um, on the property, and most of them were, were tucked back in the little corners of the woods and stuff, which, you know, hadn't been released in probably 30 or 40 years, and they were just overgrown. They were still producing fruit and stuff, so over the past couple of years, I've been able to get in there and shape those trees and open the crowns up, get them to produce good apples and stuff uh, so that they become good draws obviously you know the water here on the property was a good was a you know there was just a lot of things here that just kind of works out for this property that i just didn't 
didn't really know up front when we first bought it. So okay, I yeah, it, I see what you mean by by getting lucky. Then I mean thirty or forty fruit trees. That that's pretty crazy. pretty pretty lucky. Yeah, I mean, I mean shoot. Now everyone's got fruit trees around here. Oh, I mean, okay. there's uh, if you go up the road, there's fruit trees everywhere. So they're not the kind of draw that you would think they would be just because everyone's got fruit trees around here. But if they weren't here, it would be a problem. So we just kind of got lucky that they were here and that, you know, they were salvageable and I was able to create little orchards and stuff that are that are actually – I mean, last year we had so many dang apples here, it wasn't even funny. Wow. And and just so everybody um listening who who may not know, what is what do you mean when you released these old trees and you you picked them up a little bit? Can you dive into what that means specifically? Yeah, so fruit trees need sunlight. Um especially during the first couple months of uh springtime, like April, May, when there's still the danger that there could be frost or whatever. So if you have trees that are growing up above the fruit trees, shading them out first thing in the morning, they're not being exposed to that morning sun. So if you do have a hard frost, the frost lays on the the flowers and the blossoms of the, of the apple or the pear trees, whatnot, and basically it kills them. So when that happens, you're not going to have any fruit that year. So you need to get in there, and plus your trees just aren't going to be very healthy, uh, and the fruit production isn't going to be that great because it's not getting the sunlight that it needs for the photosynthesis, uh, you know, to, to put energy into the fruit production and stuff too. So you basically go in, you get rid of the trees that are crowding your apple trees out, or your fruit trees out first. Open the canopy up around them so that they're getting direct sunlight as much as the, of the day as possible. Okay. And then, you know, I get in there and I cut all the dead branches out of them and stuff. And, uh, you know, if they need pruned, usually uh, February or March, I'll get in there and I'll prune any of the, the limbs that are kind of, they call them suckers. I'll prune all the suckers off the trunks. Uh, that way you have a nice bare trunk leading to the branches, and then you have these um, branches that grow like straight up out of, out of, basically they call them like central leaders. These little leaders will be growing up out of the branches and stuff, and they just kind of, they don't produce fruit, and they just kind of suck nutrients away from the tree and stuff. So you, you got to open your trees up and expose them to as much sunlight as possible and be able to get, you know, a good airflow through the tree so you can have a nice, healthy tree that produces good fruit. Okay, perfect. So, now, Rick, you know, after you bought this property and closed on it, I mean, what was, like, the first thing as far as habitat work you did? And did you, did you already have, like, a master plan on paper or in your head? as far as your goals and what you were going to do to this property as far as habitat work? Well, I was a bit disappointed. When I bought the property, the guy um, that owned it allowed me to come in, hang some trail cameras up. 
So I did that. And I was getting pictures of deer, but um, the bucks that I was seeing here were nothing but fork horns and spikes and just real tiny, um, scrangly-looking things and just nothing that I would be interested in shooting whatsoever. So I was a little disappointed there. We closed on the property 17 days before the opener of our 2014 Pennsylvania archery season here. So um, I had two weeks, basically, to get tree stands hung and just kind of decide where I was going to hunt. I figured, well, you know, this is going to be an observation year, so there's, like, no habitat work, nothing. You know, I'm hunting the property. I'm going to figure this property out. So the third day into the archery season, that year, 2014, I arrowed a 140-inch eight-point. Wow. Yeah. Really? 21-inch spread, and I was pretty much the talk of the town here for for quite a while. Um, it was crazy. Um, this, I guess this buck had been spotted about close to two miles from here all summer long. He was running with a different buck. I later found out that this farmer two miles from here had trail cam pictures of this deer all summer. And that's kind of way my property has been every year since then. All year long, I won't see a single decent buck here until about the end of August, early September, they start showing up. And I... I, I don't know where they come from. I have an idea. I know where they come from. There's a few farms, that same area. The way the hollows, everything just kind of points to my property, the hollows and stuff. If you look at the, the map on the topographic, uh, you look at the topo maps where the farms are. The farms are like up top on top of these hills. They're really flat. And then they have the hollows coming down the hillside and all these hollows kind of like point towards my property. It's like, really, I was looking on the map the one day and I'm like, that's like really strange. Like all these hollows are funneling deer right towards my property and my mind. Well, that's, but you know, I still pretty early for bucks to show up, you know, here in Michigan, sometimes, I mean, we'll have our regular bucks, but then you don't see the, the neighboring bucks till you know mid rut. That's what happens on our property. I have three or four doe family groups that live here. You know the bucks. They seem to the bucks seem to be around the agriculture during the summer months, and then it just seems like yep. when they hit hard horn because I do quite a bit of spotlighting here in the area. You drive around some of these farms and you just see nice buck after nice buck. I mean, they're just, they're everywhere. And then you spotlight those same farms the beginning and middle of September, you don't hardly see anything. Those deer are gone. They've relocated. Right. So, you know, basically you got to have it in your mind that at least, with what I try to do here is I try to make my property as attractive as possible during the hunting season months. I don't care what these deer do 
any other time of the year. If they want to go somewhere else in winter, somewhere else, fine. Leave, go winter somewhere else. If you want to hang out over here a few miles away on this farm and eat this farmer's uh, alfalfa and soybeans all summer long, fine. be my guest. I don't really care. You know, and these guys are getting trail cam pictures of these deer and stuff. What I care about is where they're going to be during the fall. So That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, I don't do any feeding here because uh, the baiting, a lot of guys locally here, I mean, we're in, in an area, everyone's got corn feeders going. Some of them even during the season, which is illegal here in Pennsylvania, but that's a different subject. But you look at their habitat from feeding year-round like that, it's terrible. I mean, you literally walk into their property, south-facing slope or not, and there's not a great single green thing on the ground anywhere because they're congregating all those deer in the one area with the, with the corn, baiting them in like that, and they're just eating everything in sight. So at times of the year during the fall, hunting season, the rut, when everything's drying up, you don't have that lush green growth anywhere anymore because it's all been eat, eaten up off of these properties that have been baiting year-round. They have to relocate, and they're going to go to wherever... Uh, whichever property has the least amount of stress, the best food, and the best cover. So that's kind of like what I try to do here on my property. I have a low-impact hunting strategy. I, I pick and choose my days carefully. I used to be one of these guys that would go out, and I just, I, in my mind, I thought, I just got to be out there every day. You know, that's that's going to be like my ticket to, to punch in my tag every year. The more time I put in the woods, the greater my odds are at a big buck encounter. And when I was hunting three different counties, it worked because I had, you know, anywhere from 12 to 20-some tree stands hung. In yeah, three you different weren't counties. burning a spot out, exactly. But you know, when you when you're when it's your home property now, you have to hunt it differently. So I have a low impact uh, strategy here at home. I pick and choose my days. I look for the right conditions. Uh, you know, hopefully I have a day off, and we go in and we try to get it done if if the time's right. But you know, the bucks got to be up on their feet too. I mean, if if all you're getting is nighttime photos of of these of these bucks on your trail camera, it you know it might not be time to move in on them yet. So you got to make sure that they're up on their feet during daylight hours too. So I mean, it's just a lot that goes into it. Rick, I think you and I have um, like the same exact mindset when it comes to hunting. I mean, literally, like. There's no point in going in there if the deer aren't moving in daylight, at least the ones you want to kill. Um, you know, staying out, and then, like, your property sounds like a lot like mine, where I bought it in February. I put a trail camera out in February. I didn't see a buck at all until, like, July. And July through October were little bucks, so I was real discouraged, to say the least. 
But then when November came around, it was a different story, right? So that yeah. that's an advantage of um, – I think mine, the reason for mine is I'm further away from big agriculture, so maybe the deer are on the crops right away. Once the crops get cut, they kind of move more into the cover along with the hunting pressure. But um, yeah, an advantage for you, you can screw around on your property all summer long and not bump a, a buck off there. Because they're not that's there. That's what I do too, man. I will do habitat work right up until I get my food plots planted, which is, you know, last week of July, first week of August. I get all of my tree stands hung during August. I don't even hang a trail cam until September because it's just, there's no point in it for me. I mean, if, and it's, and what I do with the trail cameras, I I don't even put the trail cameras anywhere near any of my hunting spots. It's like I put them in the apple orchard. I got them on the food plots. I got a few that I run, you know, kind of out towards the periphery of the property just to keep the neighbors honest. But for the most part, the cams that I monitor the deer with here on my property or right down here close to my house. Yep. Low intrusion. Okay. I don't ever have to go in the woods to spook those deer to check my trail cameras. I like it. Now, Rick, what are some like the biggest mistakes you've made as far as um, some of your habitat work on your property and, you know, cover, tree stand placements? You know, did it take you a while to kind of learn it? And did you learn from your mistakes? Well, I started Habitat probably about 10 years ago. Um, you know, there wasn't – I kind of got into it small like everyone does. Uh, you know, I didn't own property at the time, so it was like I was kind of limited as to what I could do. You know, basically I was just planting, throw and grow, little food plots, uh, secret spot stuff and, you know, planting little food plots. Um, I kind of devised this uh, technique called stick teepees. I don't know if you guys have ever seen me talk about that on any of the habitat pages, but what I would do is I would go in places that would make these stick teepees. Basically, I would just pick up all the sticks off the ground and stack them up into the crotches of trees to make these teepees around the trees. And I would make lines of these probably 30, 40, 50 yards long. And with these teepees, because I wasn't able to cut trees down, I was creating an edge of cover along deer trails so that deer would be more um, likely to walk along that edge of cover instead of maybe taking another route putting them past my tree stand a little bit more. But, you know, once I started buying properties and stuff where I could actually cut trees down, I got into the hinge cutting. You know, like most people, I was watching the YouTube videos and stuff, and, you know, it, and it looked fun, you know, and it, it seemed logical and stuff. You know, you were creating cover. It was instant, instant cover, instant food. I mean, it... I really, I bought it hook, line, sinker. So, 
you know, I started experimenting with it on the 10 and a half acre property, kind of like on a smaller scale, the year before we sold it. I would have done more, but we ended up selling the property, and we bought this one. I kind of, you know, bought this one two weeks before hunting season, so I hunted that year. I got to know the deer habits, where they bed, where they like to walk through and stuff, which I think is very important for anyone to do before they make a single habitat improvement on their properties. Get to know where the the areas that the deer are already using, the trails that they're using, the areas that they already like to bed in. It's a lot easier to enhance areas and get deer to do what they're already doing more frequently than it is to go into some place blindly and try to make them do something that they're already not. So find the deer trails, do some some TSI work, some hinge cutting maybe around the trails to let more light in, get more forbs and, and briars and and uh, browse growing along those trails so they use them. Basically, you're just creating like a salad bar of things to eat along the trails and stuff. It's just a lot easier to get them to do what they're already doing more frequently. Okay, but, uh, now, Rick, real quick, I how did you figure out where the deer were, were moving and, and coming and going? Were you just, did you watch that all from the tree stand or... Yeah. Or what? Cause I, well, I shot my buck on the third day of archery season that year. Yep. But it doesn't mean that I stopped hunting. Right. Now, my wife, <laughs> it was kind of a, of a hot topic for us uh, that year because in her mind, I shot my buck. Yeah, you're done. Dumb. Yep. But I, you know, I tried telling her, I said, you know, honey, I, I have to learn this property. You know, I have to figure out where these deer are moving from. I still had a doe tag, but I just kept hunting, like, with my doe tag. Like, I hadn't even shot a buck that year because I needed to figure this place out. Well, and, and the Stuff reason I ask, um, when I bought mine, it was there was snow on the ground, and I took a piece of paper and, and drew out a a rectangle shape of my property-ish, and I walked most of the deer trails and kind of drew, you know, rough lines, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, deer trails are all going this way, and you kind of, well, by the end of a couple hours of doing that, you, you you know, you you zoom out and you take a look. And uh, what I had was a couple different funnels where the, the trails kind of came together, um, just yeah. from observation, like you're saying, so... You pick your high odds locations. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, for for your ambush spots. Yep. So that's all I was trying to do. Okay. Cool. Plus we had plus we had some issues uh, with the neighbors that uh, we no longer have issues anymore. But you know we were given a heads up by the people who sold us the property that there was going to be a couple people we had to look out for. So. I needed my presence felt here on the property also. Gotcha. But, yeah, well, you know, I kind of, that year, I saw I had 12 different encounters with mature buck, and I could have shot five of them. 
Wow, that's huge. That's, yeah, I that's was, more than I've had in the last five years. I was extremely yep. happy about that. I thought, oh my God, this 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 place is a magnum spot. It's even better than I thought it was going to be. And so, mature buck to Rick is three and a half year old. Yep, we're on the same or, same page. Or older. Same. Yep. So it's, wow, you know, I I have self imposed. Um, limit here, age limit on myself and anyone who hunts here. Uh, obviously, if my wife wants to shoot a younger buck, I'll allow that. And my son, once he starts hunting, you know, you know, he can shoot whatever he wants to also. But, you know, for me and anyone else that I allow to come here, it's a three-and-a-half-year-old or you don't shoot it. So, yeah, I saw 12 three-and-a-half-year-olds that year, different bucks. That is... A lot in terms of uh, so, where we hunt. I went into the 2015 season and made some drastic changes here. I had a couple areas, these pockets of aspen here on the property. Groups of anywhere from 30 to maybe 50 trees, and I basically went into these areas. They were mature aspens. I dropped all of them. Uh, actually, I dropped about 80% of the stand in each of these three locations and uh, cleaned everything up, made trails. I did a bunch of hinge cutting and stuff in the areas that I identified as bedding areas. Um, you know, I did a lot of the, the overhead canopy corridors and stuff and with the little hoops thing, tying, tying the hoops together and you know, I I made something that I thought was a masterpiece. I mean, it was uh, it made complete sense to me. You know, that following year, trail cams, you know, surveys during the summer, the doe family groups were using them. Everything was fine until hunting season, <clears throat> and then the, these hinge cuts. There was no deer around them. I just couldn't understand what was going on. It's like this is where all of the browse was. This is where all the new forbs and the cover was and everything. And the deer were not coming anywhere close to these things. Instead, the doe groups were bedding out in the open timber, places where I would have never dreamed that deer would bed. They were bedding in open timber rather than back in the cover when those hinge cuts. And it, it was really tricky. I had to get mobile that year. I ended up shooting a nice eight point that year, uh, the last Saturday of archery season. But, I mean, it was a grinder. I was hardly seeing any deer. The deer that I w- were seeing were skirting around the edges of the hinge cuts, and that's eventually how I arrowed my buck that year, I sat up kind of towards the edges of the hinge cuts in this one area, and I was able to get buck cruising through there. But they just, I mean, it was really disappointing. So they so, weren't bedding inside the hinge cuts at all? No. They, you know, it was, I just, I couldn't understand it. So maybe I was thinking, you know, maybe they're just too thick. You know, yeah. so maybe I need to go in and clean them up some. So I went in. The following year, cleaned them up drastically, made all these little side routes, uh, you know, thinking maybe some of the uh, trails were 
too constrictive for too long, so I was making side trails and stuff. I got rid of a lot of the overhead cover. I mean, you, you could I could walk through these things pretty much standing up straight and just bend over, just slightly scoop my head and get so it wasn't like I was making these things that deer had to duck underneath and crawl underneath and stuff. I mean, it just, they were perfect, just like I was seeing the guys do on the, uh, you know, and by this time, you know, I, you, you buy the uh, the access to, all the videos and stuff and you're getting to see exactly what they're doing in these videos and you're doing the same things on your property and they still didn't work hmm. same thing the following year 2016 I ended up rupturing my Achilles tendon twice that year my right leg so I almost didn't hunt at all Ow. Yeah, it was the same thing, and it was even worse because as I was in there cleaning these hinge cuts up, removing the logs and stuff, I had ruptured the Achilles tendon, so there was a lot of stuff in there that I wasn't able to, to get to. So it was like 2016 was much of the same that 2015 was. The deer weren't using the hinge cuts. They wouldn't even walk through them. I mean, I had, I, I witnessed Buck walk right to the edge of the trails, stand there, stare at him. Think, it looked like he was thinking to himself, you know, do I want to walk through there? No, they walk right around him. They would not walk down those trails. They had overhead canopy on them. Okay, well, that's so, pretty interesting. It kind of leads yeah. to what uh, Teddy had to say, and... Episode number seven, he was saying that uh, the overhead cover didn't work for him in Pennsylvania as well. So I wonder if it's um, you know something to do with what your deer are, are used to, and you know if it's, if it's the more the big woods type, or or maybe even well, just I've, the more terrain verse yeah. type of deer. Um, I've I've come to the conclusion that deer, at least in my area, I'm not saying this is true everywhere because I realize I have a limited experience. You know, I haven't hunted in Ohio or New York or, you know, gone out to the Midwest, but at least my little area of the deer woods here, the deer prefer to use terrain to their advantage over with bedding and with uh, the trails and stuff. So what I've started doing with the trails Instead of um, making a wall of cover on both sides of the trails, my steering trails and stuff, I'll have a wall of cover on one side to kind of steer them to where I want to go. And then on the opposite side of the trail, I have basically nothing. There's nothing preventing them from being able to walk right off of that trail at any point uh, in time. You know, basically why that is is, you know, if you have these tight, constricted trails, you're seeing a lot of these guys making on YouTube where they're hinging trees this way and they're hinging trees that way, and it's just like this sidewalk between these two walls of cover. Well, what happens when the deer's walking down that trail and runs into a pack of coyotes or maybe a, a hungry bear or, or any other threat to that deer 
when they're in a situation like that. There's only two ways they can go because you've got hard cover on both sides of the trail. Right. You either turn around and run the same way the, the same way that they came in, or they have to try to force themselves straight through the danger. Well, and that's where I, I wonder um, which way your hinge cuts were, because I know that when you do something like that, I've never done it yet, but I, from everything I've read, you're supposed to lay the, those barrier hinge cuts um, perpendicular to the way the deer would be walking or the trail, so that way he could escape left or right if he wanted to, but um, the ease of use would be to walk right down the middle. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't think you want it too thick. I don't think you want to make them feel trapped at all because then they won't use it. Yeah, I've witnessed it firsthand wow. over and over again. And ever since I've adopted this new way of of making these trails, it's like the deer walk right down them every single time. Oh, perfect. Well, shoot. Okay. Keep that up then. Um Okay, now, what else are you doing? I heard you mention in one of your videos on Facebook about, I believe I'm using the, your terminology, you call them green rooms, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just a generic term that I throw out. <clears throat> Basically, uh, these green rooms, I'm putting them in areas of, known bedding areas around my property. <clears throat> the deer like, the bucks, seems like the bucks like to bed up high around here. Near the military crest of the ridges or any kind of little points where they have a vantage point, you know, maybe 50, 60 yards down below them where they can see quite a ways. <clears throat> And then they have usually some type of cover behind them, either the hillside or some type of brushy cover. They like to have the wind at their backs or slightly quartering towards their backs. And then they'll have the thermals, because most of my property is south-facing slope, they'll have the thermals sweeping up the hillside. So these deer, they, they really have bulletproof bedding areas here on this property. So what I'm trying to do in these areas where I'm trying to get these bucks and the, just the deer in general to use these bedding locations more frequently as I'm creating these green rooms. And basically, all I'm doing is I'm going into these areas that deer are already bedding in naturally. It's a lot easier, like I said, to get deer to do what they're already doing more frequently because they're already doing it than it is to try to force them to do something that they're already not. So, and we all know that deer eat five to six times during the day. <clears throat> well, if you're trying to get deer, to, you know, like these south-facing slopes that I have, the ridges and stuff, so I'm trying to stack deer in here, more of them, in these bedding locations. I'm basically going in close to these bedding areas. I'm taking down a couple low-value trees, in this area, they're usually red maples, and I'm dropping them parallel to the line of the topographic line here on on the hillside. Okay. I, if I have to drop them straight downhill, I will, but I usually try to lay them parallel 
so I can keep the line of travel consistent across the hillside. We're punching big holes in the canopy. Then I might hinge a couple trees on over top of these big trees, and I'm just basically creating these pocket, these big giant holes in the canopy out across the hillside. And I call them green rooms because when the sun comes in, they just turn green with forbs, briars, brambles, um, new brows. Oh, and, yeah, deer food. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, it just stacks the deer right along these hillsides. And so you're finding that the deer, I know they're going to eat in there, but they, do they bed in there too? They're bedding in there. Not only are they bedding in there, but they're doing it more frequently. Okay. I mean, I can walk through there pretty much at any given time, or I have this four-wheeler trail that runs up along the ridge there up top. I don't go up there often, but when I do, I'm kicking deer out of there left and right. Yep. And it's just just adding a higher level of predictability to their movements here. I mean, like I said, deer eat four or five times during the day, usually three times at night and twice during the day. So they have to have food in their bedding areas. And these open pockets of canopy are just creating these thick, localized, nasty little patches they they can tuck themselves into. It's going to provide them the security cover that they need, and it's going to give them the food that they need also during the day. So it's just making the hunting here much more predictable, a little bit more exciting. No, that's that's great. I think that's uh, probably one of your main goals, is it not? Oh, yeah. So basically the main goal here is, you know, the main goal when we bought this place, in my mind, I just envisioned I wanted to have a place to, to raise a family and to teach. You know, we didn't have kids at the time, but we wanted to have kids, and I wanted to teach them about hunting and just pass on, you know, the whole heritage and and stuff like that. So um, Very cool. Yeah. So, you know, so we have the property. Now my job is to create and shape this property to where we'll all enjoy a quality hunting experience. You know, are, are we going to shoot the biggest buck in the valley here every year? Probably not. Are, are we going to see some nice ones and get an opportunity to shoot some nice ones every year? Well, so far, it's been working out pretty good. So, you know, it's you got to have realistic expectations. You know, like I said, I mean, I think, you know, with the whole hunting industry and stuff, you see these guys, everything's always easier out in Utopia. <laughs> you know, when you're out in Iowa or Kansas, Missouri, these guys are dropping these 180, you know, 190-inch buck, you know, left and right, and it looks so easy, you know. And I, I see here on a lot of the social media forums here locally in Pennsylvania, you know, a lot of guys are – posting pictures and, you know, maybe of the nice 110-inch buck and, you know, guys are saying, oh, give him two more years. And you got all these guys on there saying, I won't shoot anything less than five and a half years old. Well, 
I mean, I don't know any place in the immediate area here where guys can hold out for a five and a half year old deer. <laughs> I mean, Not around here. So, I mean, it's possible, but you no, know, it's like I said, you don't you don't buy a hunting property to not shoot something. You, you know, you got to have a quality hunting experience. You know, and like I said, the the age limit here that I have uh, restricted on my property is three and a half year olds. And what I've found over the past four years is that is a very realistic expectation for this property. Last year, we had what? Two, three, four year olds visiting the property here on a regular basis. Um, That's pretty good. At least two of them made it through hunting season. Both of those bucks were here the year before as two-and-a-half-year-olds. So I'm really hoping history repeats itself, and maybe we're going to have a four-and-a-half-year-old to hunt here this year. We'll see what happens. Nothing wrong with both, that. I'd be happy with that. Both of those two-and-a-half-year-olds I passed to that, that year, which was two years ago. So. so on a fun note, Rick, I, uh, I heard you have a little story about our friend Teddy. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, basically, around December 2016, I started the Northeast Whitetail Habitat and Strategy Management Habitat page. Uh, I told you guys I kind of, like, learned my lesson with hinge cutting. I was convinced that, you know, you look look at the forums, you know, a couple years ago, and guys were talking about, oh, how to improve your deer property. Everyone was like, hinge cutting, hinge cutting, hinge hinge cutting. You see all the pictures. I mean, guys were just, like, going in and leveling their entire properties (laughs) because they they were watching these YouTube videos, and they just thought, yeah, that's that's what you do. It's, It's working for these guys out in the Midwest and stuff. Well, I had a lot of friends. The people that I know here locally that were doing it too, and they were having the same experiences as me. Rick, you know, we had good hunting here before we did the hinge cutting. It's like, what's going on? Oh, they don't like the hinge cutting. So, you know, we started arguing with some of the guys, more better known guys on a few of the other habitat pages and stuff, and you know, there were civil arguments, but we had differences of opinions that which led me to start the group. So uh, after starting the group, we started getting some members trickling in. We're not we're not a really large group. We've got about a little over 2,400 members, and that's just fine with me. I don't want to be as big as some of these other groups because, I mean, some of these, you know, they say, there's the old saying that, you know, no question is a stupid question. Well, I, I'm here to tell you, some of these, some of the things these guys talk about, you just have to shake your head and say, you know, are these guys serious? <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't want to be a, a big group. But we got a great group of guys. And some of these guys have become my good friends here recently. It's kind of weird because, like, almost immediately 
a few of us, few of the guys would add me as a friend on Facebook, and then we'd be private messaging and stuff. And, you know, through the private messages, I'd find out, well, he also talks to this guy, and that guy talks to this guy, you know, and we're all kind of interacting with each other on the page and stuff. So uh, right after hunting season this year, I had some habitat information that I wanted to pass on to a few guys. So I started this group chat, and basically there's eight of us in this group chat, and the guys' names are Steve Lemke, Phil Holcomb, Kevin High, Teddy Clark, Mike Novick. They're all from Pennsylvania, and then we have a couple foreigners here, too. We got Eric Zelensky, who's from New York, who you guys know. Yeah. And then Danny Capagna is from Canada. So we've got a pretty good, diverse group here. We talk about all kinds of stuff. And these guys are some really solid dudes, man. They're great fathers. They're great outdoorsmen. Funny as hell. We talk every single day. Like, I started this group chat in December thinking, well, you know, I'm going to offer these guys the, the information that I have. They want it, you know, whatever. Well, it's like a week goes by. We're talking every day, two weeks, a couple months, and it's like, I can't believe we're talking every single day. Like, it's just unbelievable. And we talk about everything. But one of the things we did was, you know, I had met a few of the guys at a conference down at Cabela's. They had a Day of Deer Knowledge at Cabela's in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. They had uh, a lot of nationally recognized speakers there talking about deer habitat. Uh, Dr. Craig Harper was there, Steve Wineland, uh, a couple other guys. It was a great conference. So that was the first time that I actually got to meet a few of them. Then we planned the guys wanted to have a habitat day here at my house. And they wanted me to take them through, show them, the habitat improvements here, kind of like go through piece by piece, explain to them why I'm doing what I'm doing. I, I admit I'm not the best talker, but um, <laughs> it's, it helps when they're actually here and I'm able to show them stuff. So, Teddy Clark is uh, who you guys interviewed, I guess, a few weeks ago. Uh, him and Mike Novick own a food plot company, feed company. It's called Northridge Wildlife Forge. Teddy came along for the Habitat Day, and Teddy's like big time predator hunter. He's also one hell of a squirrel hunter. The guy's got squirrels mounted all over his house. And stuff. <laughs> That's like a different story. We always like rag on him about having all these squirrels mounted and stuff. But uh, Teddy's walking around the woods, and, you know, as I'm, I don't predator hunt, I'm more of an opportunistic hunter in that aspect. When I see a coyote, I kill it. Yeah, of course. So bear season, if I see one, I kill it. But Teddy's here, he's walking around, and he's picking up one of the things that predator hunters do, he's a trapper also. 
as he's picking up the scat off the ground. He's breaking it apart to see what they're eating. So I guess it's, like, especially important for, like, what kind of call you're going to use to have the coyotes come into you or where you're going to set your traps up to maybe try to catch them going into a, a food source or, or whatnot. So it's like every time he walks past a pile of poop, he's picking it up off the ground and, like, breaking it apart. He's over there sniffing it and everything. And the guy's kind of, like, laughing at him or whatever. So we're about halfway through the, the habitat day, and we're up in one of the hollows, and I'm kind of showing these guys what I'm doing up there. And a few days beforehand, I was up in this same area, Doing some chainsaw work and stuff. Oh, no. I know where this is going. Nature cult. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of, like, thought, well, you know, all right, let me just cut a few more pieces here. I can make it down to the house and stuff. Well, it turned into an emergency situation. So I ended up having to go there in the woods, you know, and I didn't make it far off the trail when I went. I wasn't really thinking that we were going to be having these guys come over. You know, I, you know, it just didn't occur to me that I should move farther off the trail. So we're kind of walking down the hill, down the path. I'm talking to a couple of the guys up front. Teddy's kind of hanging in the back with a few of the other guys, and I can't really hear what they're saying back there. And Teddy picks his turn up off the ground. And uh, he's looking at it. He's like, what in the hell kind of turd is this? He's looking at it and stuff. He's holding it in his bare fingers. And, and someone said, that looks like a Rick turd. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard that. And then Teddy said, hey, Rick, he's laughing. He said, did you shit back here? And I turned around, and Teddy's got a hold of this freaking log in his fingers. Oh, my gosh. And he's just, he's not just holding it. He's actually sniffing this thing. <laughs> so I just lost it. And, you know, when, when I lost it, I mean, I almost, I almost pissed my pants. Everyone's laughing. And he's standing there like he didn't think that we were serious at first. And then all of a sudden he realized, like, I'm really holding his turd right now, so he just kind of tosses it off to the side, wipes his hands on his pants, and just walks away. So it's it was just oh my god, it was it's something that we still laugh about to these days. I mean, these seriously, these, these guys were all just such a cast of characters and talk to each other every day. Great group of guys. Oh, so, man, I mean, that's hilarious. You couldn't have made that nothing up. Nothing else comes about from having started this Habitat page. I'm just glad that, I, you know, I got to meet some new friends. And, you know, I, and I do. I consider these guys my friends now. Well, that's great. Very cool. I, uh, I follow along on your page, and you guys do put up a lot of good information. Um, I know you're always out there in the woods, Rick, and uh, Teddy is as well. Um I wish I would have known that about Teddy before we interviewed him. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> All right. But, uh, no, that's just like a great group. And uh, can you list the name of that group one more time for everybody if they wanted to find it and check it out on Facebook? Yeah, it's Northeast Whitetail Habitat and Strategy Management. 
Cool. You know, we're, we're all just a bunch of regular guys. None of us claim to be experts. You know, we're there to, to help people, basically. Um, you know, we like to keep it clean. You know, we don't put up with any kind of troublemakers or anything. It's a place where you can show your work off. You can ask questions. We don't allow any for sale posts, no outfitters, or any guys who are just looking to make a name for themselves or make a buck. I mean, seriously, there's other pages for that. The hunting industry is full of fake, narcissistic people, in my opinion, you know, whose primary goal is to separate hunters from the hard-earned cash by selling gimmicky products and stuff that, in my opinion, 90% of them we don't even need. So... We don't allow that kind of stuff to go on during the page, which is probably another reason why we're a smaller group. Yeah, no, that's that's pretty cool. Um, We're kind of running out of time here, Rick. Do you uh, you have anything else you want to cover? Uh, That's about it. I mean, I I had a lot of stuff written down here, but, I mean, it's like, we could probably just keep talking for days about this stuff. Oh yeah, well we'll uh, we'll definitely check in with you um, later here in the summer once some more habitat stuff gets rolling and see uh, what projects you got going on. But we uh, definitely appreciate your time and having me on. It's been been great to talk to you, and it's interesting to you know just just learn about the different states and the habitat you guys have down there compared to Michigan and definitely learn some cool things. Yeah, I appreciate the invite, man. I mean, it's I had a lot of fun. Well, yeah, Rick. Very good. Thanks again for coming on. We really appreciate it and like just said we will uh obviously keep in touch. Uh we're connected now online and everything, so Uh, Be safe out in the woods here, buddy, and um, yeah, like I said, keep in touch. Thank you again, everybody. That is another episode in the books for the Habitat Podcast. I want to thank Rich for coming on. Um, Always love hearing stuff about other states where it's so different from from what we do here in Michigan, at least the terrain part, for sure. Uh, I know a lot of our land, at least where I hunt, is pretty flat, so very cool to hear what what he's doing over there in PA. Um, Jordan on the review, thank you again. Your detail will be coming your way. Uh, everybody else, if you could please go online, leave us some feedback, whether it's on your phone, on the podcast app, on the Stitcher radio app, like us on Facebook, maybe say something nice on there if you want to. Either way, thanks so much for, for listening. Thanks for the feedback. Um, we're going to keep giving away things like decals, maybe some t-shirts when uh, those are finished up to people that uh, give us the nice reviews and, and our, our loyal listeners. So thank you again very much. If you want to hear more of our episodes, you can find us at habitatpodcast.com. You'll see all of our episodes on there. You can throw in your email address and we'll email you whenever a new one is launched. Uh, If you're on the podcast app or the Stitcher app, make sure you subscribe. That way the new episode will be downloaded to your phone as soon as we launch it. Um, And then the Habitat Podcast Facebook page. We put a lot of videos and pictures up on there of of stuff we're working on personally. 
you know, with a podcast, all you can do is listen to us, but on Facebook, you can at least uh, put some pictures to some of the projects and some of the faces, etc. So, just want to personally thank everybody again, and uh, we got another good guest coming soon, so stay tuned, and uh, we'll be back. Thank you. Thank you.